0: We began our study on the book of Ephesians by looking first uh, a little bit at the history and culture of Ephesus, and also the history of Paul's relationship with the Ephesian church. And we looked at the beginning of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, in which he says, Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And we asked this question, which comes up immediately in the text What is an apostle? And we gave an answer derived from Scripture. An apostle is a person called by Christ to be a testimony of his resurrection among the nations through preaching with confirming signs and wonders. Paul was on many occasions, for various reasons, forced to defend the legitimacy of his own calling as an apostle. And he gave, in essence, a four-point defense as to why he was indeed a legitimate and true apostle of Christ. He was a personal witness to the resurrected Christ. He was called to this apostolic ministry directly by Christ himself. He had demonstrated and performed in the course of his ministry the miraculous signs of an apostle, and he had sealed or verified or ratified his apostleship through the successful conversion of the Gentiles. And so we read now, continuing in Ephesians 1, 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints being in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you, and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul said he was an apostle, but he said he was an apostle by or through the will of God. Now this is a constant refrain in Paul's letters, that his apostleship is by the will of God. It is in First Corinthians, in second Corinthians, in Colossians, in Second Timothy, uh, we have this language the same as in Ephesians by the will of God. And he explains it even more ira- elaborately in 1 Corinthians 9:16 and 17. for he says, "For if I proclaim the gospel, there is no glory to me, for necessity is laid upon me. This word necessity ananka constraint with the implication of distress even, he is he is constrained, and it is woe to me if I do not proclaim the gospel. For if I do this willingly, hekon I have a reward, but if unwillingly, I am entrusted with a stewardship. Very interesting language uh, to portray his relationship to the proclamation of the gospel in which he essentially says he did not undertake it as a vocational calling that was of some interest to him that he decided one day after a personality test and uh, all things considered. uh, The apostleship seemed like a a good path to him in fact he says he is in a sense unwilling to be an apostle that it is it is laid upon him uh, with constraint to the point that if he does not do it uh, there is a woe to him by the will of God many of his epistles he, he puts it another way in Romans and also in First Corinthians, uh, he says by divine calling. Slight difference. Uh, Romans one one he says he is a called apostle. This is the word kletos, called. In the Gospels, this word kletos often means merely an invitation. Many are called, but few are chosen. But. Once we reach the epistles, kleitos always means an irresistible divine call, called according to his purpose, called to be saints, called and chosen. In essence, Paul is saying that by the same powerful authoritative call by which men are called effectually and irresistibly to salvation, by that same kind of call... He was called to his apostleship. Once again, not something he chose, but something he was chosen to, called irresistibly to. Woe to me if I do not proclaim the gospel. He says he's an apostle by the will of God. He says he is a called apostle by divine calling. He says... Elsewhere that he is an apostle by command, first Timothy 1 one an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to a command of God our Savior, even the Lord Jesus Christ. this is epitage an, an injunction uh, a mandate. we can compare what Paul says in first Timothy 1: 1, one with how he, he elaborates this concept in Titus one. 1-3, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and full knowledge of the truth according to godliness, on hope of eternal life, which the God who does not lie promised before the eternal times, but revealed in its own times in the preaching of his word with which I was entrusted by the command of of our Savior God, or also Romans 16:25 and 26, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the proclaiming of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery having been kept unvoiced during eternal times, but now has been made plain and by prophetic scriptures according to the commandment of the everlasting God made known for the obedience of faith to all the nations. So if we put these three verses together, 1 Timothy 1 1, Titus 1, 1 through 3, and Romans 16, 25 through 26, we see the mandate. His he was an, an apostle by command. The message which he preached was by command, and the purpose of the apostleship for which he was given this message was the conversion of the nations. So he is an apostle by the will of God, by a divine call, by a command of God, and to seal it off. In Galatians, he emphasizes that this calling, this commandment, is from God alone. It is not a combination of his will and God's will. It is not a cooperation of his purposes and desires with God's purposes and desires. In Galatians 1 1, in fact, in fact there's not even uh, an intermediary. Um, like a, a committee or, or the other apostles. Galatians 1.1, an apostle not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. He is an apostle not apo, from. That is the sense of origin. Men did not decide that he should be an apostle. Nor, through men, dia, as an instrument, men did not make him an apostle. So neither as origin nor instrument did his apostleship come from men, but the origin of his apostleship, the decider, if you will, was God. The instrument of his apostleship, God Listen to what he says, not only about his apostleship in Galatians, but his gospel. Galatians 1:11 and 12. And brethren, I make known to you the gospel preached by me, that it is not according to man. For I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but by a revelation of Jesus Christ. His gospel was not kata, according to. It did not come down to him from men. Men did not invent the gospel, did not originate the gospel that he preaches, nor para was it from in the immediate sense. Men did not give Paul the gospel. Paul did not receive the gospel from the other apostles, or indeed from any man, instrumentally. So in his apostleship, the origin and instrument were God. In the gospel that he preached, the origin and instrument were God. The will And these things are connected. The will of God in Paul's apostleship is this, not the obtaining or holding of an office or the exercise of power and authority over men. The will of God in Paul's apostleship, the purpose, the calling, the command, was the powerful proclamation of a divine message for the accomplishment of a divine purpose. Now, I just want to say something about this for a moment. We are accustomed in the church, especially in Reformed Churches or churches descended from Reformed churches to speak of office in the church and to speak of it very highly. So, with all the concern about authority in office, um, it is interesting to see from the scriptures that the emphasis in the apostolic office is not at all upon the wielding of authority, but upon the purpose of this office being the proclamation of the divine message. So we continue in the epistle, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, To the saints being in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. And now we are instantly confronted with a religious word, or a word which even in modern culture is filled with connotations. And that is the word saint. To the saints being in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Well, what is a saint. Unfortunately, the most familiar use of the word is not at all the biblical use but the word which comes from Roman, the use which comes from Roman Catholicism and is to a large degree then the popular concept of the word. In Roman Catholicism, saint is actually a a very special technical term. In other words, uh, not just any good person or religious person is a saint, but only very restricted group of people. Listen to a description of the process of becoming a saint in the Roman Catholic uh, Church. The canonization, which is being made a saint, the canonization begins at the diocesan level, with the bishop giving permission to open an investigation into the candidate's virtues. This investigation may open no sooner than five years after the death of the person being investigated. However, the Pope has the authority to waive this waiting period, as was done for Mother Teresa by Pope John Paul II, and for John Paul II himself by his immediate successor, Benedict XVI. When sufficient information has been gathered, the subject of the investigation is called Servant of God, and the process is transferred to the Roman Curia, the Congregation for the Causes of the Saints, which is kind of a sort of subcommittee for sainthood, if you will, where it is assigned a postulator whose task is to gather all information about the life of the servant of God. When enough information has been gathered, the congregation will recommend to the Pope that he make a proclamation of the servant of God's heroic virtue, which entitles him or her to receive the title venerable. A venerable has, as of yet, no feast day, but prayer cards may be printed, to encourage the faithful to pray for a miracle wrought by his or her intercession. The next step depends on whether the Venerable is a martyr. For a martyr, the Pope has only to make a declaration of martyrdom, which then allows beatification, yielding the title Blessed, and a feast day in the Blessed's home diocese and perhaps some other local calendars. If the venerable was not a martyr, it must be proven that a miracle has taken place by his or her intercession. Today, these miracles are almost always miraculous cures as these are the easiest to establish based on the Catholic Church's requirement for a miracle. The patient was sick. There was no known cure. Prayers were directed to the venerable. The patient was cured and the doctors cannot explain it. To pass from blessed... To saint, one more miracle is necessary. The church places special weight on those miracles or instances of intercession that happened after the individual died and which are seen to demonstrate the saint's continued special relationship with God after death. When all of this is done, the pope canonizes the saint. In other words, you have uh, um, emphasis directed on miracles performed perhaps during one's life and then this emphasis on miracles performed after death because that would show that you have, as it were, the right ear of God. A saint's feast day is considered universal and may be celebrated anywhere within the Catholic Church, although it may or may not appear on the general calendar. The body of the saint is considered holy. The remains of saints are called holy relics and are usually used in churches. The saint's personal belongings may also be used as relics. Until 1983, the process of canonization was like a trial at which the saint was said to be defended by the church and a prosecutor was appointed to attack all evidence alleged in favor of canonization. This prosecutor was popularly called the devil's advocate and his opponent, God's advocate. This process has now been streamlined and the position of devil's advocate eliminated. So, in the Roman Catholic Church, where we're accustomed to hearing about St. Teresa or St. Thomas or St. Michael, it is a technical term which implies that this is a person who, aside from having gone through the... um, regulatory process, if you will, to be declared a saint, is a person of extraordinary virtue. And in that sense, the common use reflects this idea that people are called saints who are especially good, especially nice, who do something especially uh, useful, or and especially when that thing is done uh with no gain for the individual, or perhaps even cost to themselves. But is this the Bible usage? Does this really reflect sainthood in the Bible? Well, when we look at the word that is used for saint in the scriptures, we find it applied to many things. It is applied to God. God is holy. Isaiah forty three three for I am Jehovah your God, the holy one of Israel, your Savior. God's name is holy, Luke one hundred forty nine, for the mighty one did great things to me and holy is his name. God's Spirit is holy. John twenty twenty two, in saying this he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. God's word is holy, Romans one two. Which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. God's apostles are holy, his prophets are holy, his angels are holy, his temple, his land, his people. But unfortunately, in this use of the word, we're not really learning anything. It is, in a way, a word with no content or self discernible meaning. We need some kind of detail or explanation. Otherwise, it's just a, a word. We want to know, in short, what is biblical holiness, or the biblical definition for holiness. Well, there's two words. The Hebrew word in the Old Testament, kodesh, and the New Testament word, hagios, which on a very simple level, simply means to be set apart or separated or consecrated or translated then as holy, there are four concepts of holiness in the scriptures. The first concept is holiness as divine separation. 1 Samuel 2.2 2. None is holy like Jehovah. For there is none except you. Yea, there is no rock like our God. In other words, God is uniquely Kodesh. He is uniquely Hagios. There is none like him. But what is God separate from? Well, first of all, and most importantly, God is separate from the creation or from the creature. In other words, the divine separation is, first of all, the separation between the created and the uncreated, between God and not God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, there are then two things, if you will, that exist. There are the things that were created, and then whatever was not created, which simply always has been. And that alone is God, or God alone, is uncreated. It is the separation of divinity. There is none except you. God is also separate from fallen creation. So he's separate by nature. He is also separate from his creation ethically. Because creation has been plunged into sin. God is separate from sin and from all that is corrupted or defiled by sin. This is not merely the absence of corruption, which is a related concept, but the irreconcilability of God to the fallen, not God. This is ethical separation now let's be very clear when we talk about ethical separation that we do not mean that there is an external standard to God in other words there's some kind of of, of list and God meets certain criteria and creation doesn't meet those criteria after the fall that would place God under his own law which is not true Rather, we're talking about an ethical separation by a comparison of the nature of God to the nature of not God in its fallen condition. Light versus darkness. So the first concept of holiness is holiness as divine separation. The second concept that appears in the scriptures of holiness is holiness as the presence of God, or what we call holy places. Exodus 3, 4, and 5, perhaps the most famous uh, of all holy places other than the temple itself. And Jehovah saw that he turned aside to see, and God called to him, to Moses, from the midst of the thorn bush, and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Behold me. And he said, Do not come near here. Pull off your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now we need to be very careful to understand holiness of places in the scripture, because it sounds... Very much like a pagan concept. And so comparative religious studies look in, and into the Old Testament they say, Aha, here's this this relationship between paganism and biblical religion. The pagan concept, however, is this that a place is holy, so the gods will appear there. The Christian concept is that a place is holy because God appears there, and ultimately only as long as God appears there. So let's be very clear about this. A place is not holy uh, or good, and, and and so God says, well, that's the sort of place I can I can appear. There is no place good enough for God to appear in that sense, because the creation itself is subjected to the bondage of sin. When God appears, he causes that place to be holy because of his presence. Things are made holy by the presence of God, but not the thing itself, only God's presence. This is contrary to the superstitious idea and is very important as we move into the third and fourth concepts. Things are made holy by the presence of God, because God's presence is the holy presence. The third concept of biblical holiness is holiness as the service of God. Holy things. So, holy places the presence of God, holy things, including people, the service of God. In this concept, things are made holy by consecration to God, which is merely devotion to his service. Listen to Exodus twenty-nine, thirty-six, and 37 about the worship of God. And you shall offer a bull of a sin offering daily for atonement, and you shall purify the altar in your making atonement for it. And you shall anoint it to sanctify it. That's our word. You shall make atonement seven days for the altar and shall sanctify it. And the altar shall become most holy. And everything the, uh, touching the altar shall become holy. Exodus 28 eight two, You shall make holy garments for your brother Aaron for glory and for beauty. Now, you cannot make Aaron's clothing ethically or if you will innately holy because it is a thing. The altar itself is a construction made by men. It's just things. You can't make it. It has no it has no soul. It has no ethical capacity. It cannot be innately holy. This is external or ceremonial or, if you will, positional holiness. And so the very definition of holiness here is simply set apart for use by God. But that is symbolic of ethical separation. For the holy things and people and places could become defiled by contact with the world or with corruption or with that which is not God. So the people of God in the Old Testament are said to be a holy people. Exodus 19.6 And you shall become a kingdom of priests for me, a holy nation. Now that's very important because it's a Hebrew couplet in which the two things are analogous. A holy nation is defined by a kingdom of priests for me. What do priests do? They Serve and worship God. So a kingdom of priests, by, ne- by definition, is holy because they are set apart to serve God. Now let's bring this into the New Testament to give an interesting example. 1 Corinthians 7, 32, 35, through 35 But I desire you to be without care. The unmarried one cares for the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the one marrying cares for the things of the world, how to please the wife. The wife and the virgin are different. The unmarried one cares for the things of the Lord, that she be holy in both body and spirit. But the married one cares for the things of the world, how to please the husband. And I say this for your advantage, not to put a snare before you, but for the fitting thing and waiting on the Lord without distraction. Very important verse because it is the basis for monasticism with the idea that the... Single life makes you more virtuous than the married life. And that monastic rendering is a surface rendering that is contrary to the intended and actual meaning, which is very simple to understand. It does not mean that a married person is incapable of being godly in body and spirit. This is a technical use. The unmarried one cares for the things of the Lord, that she be holy in both body and spirit. Not that I put a snare before you, but for the fitting thing and waiting on the Lord without distraction. Holy equals set apart equals cares for the things of the Lord equals waiting on the Lord. In a way that is easier to do than for the married person. Now, holiness of presence and holiness of service sometimes meet. The temple was holy, but within the temple was the holy of holies. Why the holy of holies? Because that was where God manifested his presence. The temple was set apart to the service of God, so it was holy. But the center of the temple was the holy of holies, because God manifested his presence there in receiving the symbolic sacrificial atonement. Compare this idea to Exodus 29, 44 through 46. And I will sanctify, there's our word, the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar. And I will sanctify Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me. And I will dwell... "...in the midst of the sons of Israel, and I will be God to them. And they shall know that I am Jehovah their God, who brought them out from the land of Egypt, that I may dwell in their midst. I am Jehovah their God." The connection between holiness of service, "...I will set apart the tabernacle of the congregation, and the altar, and Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me, and holiness of presence, and I will dwell in the midst of the sons of Israel." The fourth concept is holiness as ethical conformity to God. And this one ties in to both the second and the third concept, holiness of presence, holiness of service. There is ethical conformity to God and away from not God because of God's... There is ethical conformity to God and away from not God because of God's setting us apart to himself. Let's compare Leviticus 20, 22 in the verses afterwards with 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. Leviticus 20, 22 through 25 and 26. And you shall keep all my statutes and all my judgments and shall do them. And the land where I am bringing you to live in shall not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the statutes of the nation which I am casting out from before you. For all these they have done, and I am disgusted with them. But I have said to you, you shall surely possess their land. And I, I am giving it to you to possess it, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am Jehovah your God, who has set you apart from the nations. And you shall be holy to me, for I, Jehovah, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to become mine. Now listen to 1 Peter 1, 13-16, which cites this Leviticus verse in the New Testament context. Because of this, "...having girded up the loins of your mind, being sober, perfectly hope on the grace being brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ, as children of obedience, not fashioning yourselves to your former lusts and your ignorance, but according to the Holy One who has called you, you also become holy in all conduct, because it has been written, Be holy, because I am holy." This is ethical conformity to God because of God's setting us apart to himself, or calling us to himself, as it is in 1 Peter. There is ethical conformity to God, however, and away from not God, not merely because of God's setting us apart to himself, but because of God's presence within us. 1 Corinthians three sixteen and 17, do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone ruins the temple of God, God will bring that one to ruin, for the temple of God is holy. Which temple are you? So the body is the temple of God. It is where God dwells by his Spirit. And so is holy because his presence is there. So what does that mean for conduct? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Then taking the members of Christ, shall I make them members of a harlot? Let it not be. Or do you not know that he being joined to a harlot is one body? For he says the two shall be into one flesh. But the one being joined to the Lord is one spirit. So, flee fornication, every man, every sin which a man may do is outside the body, but he doing fornication sins against his own body, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit in you, which you have from God, and you are not of yourselves? You were bought with a price, then glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are of God, so Paul in 1 corinthians six fifteen through twenty, here Joins three concepts. The concept of union with Christ. That we are Christ's body. The concept of being owned by another. You were bought with a price. And the concept of our body as a temple of the Holy Spirit. Three things join together because of God's presence. Three things join together to teach ethical conformity to God and away from that which is not God because of God's presence. We're set apart, we're indwelt, therefore we must ethically conform to that which is God and unconform to that which is not God. So what is sainthood then? It is to be set apart by God for his purposes, and to be indwelt by God, filled with his presence, so that we serve God and conform to God rather than the not God. So listen to this as it is explained in First Peter chapter 2, verses 1-9. through 9. Then laying aside all malice and all guile, and all hypocrisies and envies and all evil words, as newborn babes desire the pure soul-nourishing milk that you may grow by it, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good, to whom, having drawn near a living stone, indeed having been rejected by men, but chosen by God, precious, you also as living stones are being built into a spiritual House, A holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Because of this, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion an elect precious stone, a corner foundation, and the one believing in him shall not be ashamed, never. Then to you who believe belongs the preciousness, but you are an elect race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for possession, so that you may openly speak of the virtues of the one who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light.